everybody, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate you guys being here and supporting the people that support us. And do not forget Dr. TV, the streaming show. If you're interested in today's conversation, I think you'll find some of that interesting as well. Uh, that's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at three o'clock. And again, if you have quite, you have suggestions for uh, guests, it's contact at drdrew.com. Today's guest is Dr. Russell Sarasky. He is working in addiction medicine as neurologist. Uh, he, we've been swimming in the same waters for a minute. And I think Dr. Sarasky, you reached out to me on Instagram or something. Is that, am I remembering this right? Uh, I believe that's correct. Yes. And that I thought was, I, I was immediately like, yes, let's do this. We, we should talk about all this stuff. This is so much going on right now. It's perfect. For and sure. You, you know, um, I was always, you know, I, I, I'm very excited to, to kind of be with you here today and, and speak with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited because, you know, to speak with you today about the critical new advancements we have in the field of addiction medicine, our understanding mm-hmm. about the changes in the brain that trap people into this life and death condition, and, and really how these new treatments uh, present new hope to all those that are suffering. Yeah, it, there's a lot that, for us to get into here. Um, you know, addiction is something. So, so my history is I'm an internist. I ended up running medical services in a psychiatric hospital back in the day when I could do critical care, inpatient medicine, outpatient medicine, and psychiatric hospital work when we could do everything. And that's why I like internal medicine. Now it's all separated into the hospital specialists and all that stuff. And uh, about 1991, I assumed the position of director of a large hospital-based addiction recovery program. And so I've seen, you know, it, and that, that hospital was um, founded a hundred years before I got there. And so it was like a museum of psychiatry. And, uh, and then I watched, you know, the evolution of our field and I had to live through the opioid crisis where I was screaming like a lunatic, you know, uh, but the powers that be, which were the pain medicine specialists primarily got control of the regulators got, and the attorneys uh, in their infinite wisdom found ways to not just sue doctors for malpractice, but criminally and civilly for, quote, inadequate treatment of pain. Uh, I was getting I was getting um, <laughs> horrible pressure from uh, regulatory agencies and hospital administration and Department of Mental Health and California Medical Society for for allowing my heroin addicts in withdrawal to be uncomfortable to have their pain scale which was as important as their vital signs what was the most important vital sign i'm sorry as important as their pulse their pain scale was a little unhappy how dare i not give that guy opiates as many opiates as they said they needed it's like it was so insane did you live through all that yes i did and look there's no question um it is an epidemic uh the uh the opiate epidemic is now taking the lives of about 200 people a day that's more than gun violence and car accidents combined. And we're all at this point, as you know, just one degree of separation. Either, you know, either we're dealing ourselves with addiction or someone very close to us is. And um, as you, you know, as you mentioned, there are a number of factors that got us to that uh, opiate epidemic. But the the primary reason was really Purdue Pharma. Uh, and I know you're familiar with this, but for the listeners, they made OxyContin. The drug OxyContin. It, it really wasn't Purdue. Purdue blew wind into the sales for sure, and they were culpable and they should be held accountable. But it was our profession, top to bottom. I assure you, it was. I have. I give an hour lecture where I 
go through the the Jick Porter letters and all these things that were used as justification and all the quotes from all the pain medicines, how they believed themselves to be white hat professionals. They were going to eliminate pain in America and Purdue was the perfect partner. They were wonderful and how great they were. That was us. And we got control of the regulatory agencies and we got control of the professional societies. And we, it was professional societies that did it more than anybody. And, uh, you know, that that was unconscionable, unconscionable. And yes, pharmaceuticals were duplicitous in this whole thing, as they always are, as they always are. Yeah. And, and, and I, I and I think you would agree. Look, obviously, the doctors have a very big responsibility here. But I think at least my impression uh, and from speaking to my colleagues, you know, I think most of the doctors that prescribed opiates, especially OxyContin and so forth, you know, they, they overdid it like doctors over. You know, most of them were well-meaning. I, I think a lot of. Um, you know, like doctors don't prescribe antibiotics. You know, doctors didn't want their patients to be in pain. And they did prescribe these opiates. Uh, Purdue, as you know, launched a, a massive fraudulent campaign in which they had uh, uh, their reps and, and sort of their, their seminars talking about how the patients couldn't get addicted if they had real pain, which was, of course, a lie. And they realized that if they can get doctors to write these opiate pain medications for things other than, you know, um, cancer-related pain, what they were designed for, but rather for everyday aches and pains and headaches and so forth, then they can make a lot more money. And they were right. The Oxycontin made $32 billion. You, and, um, you, you didn't live through this, I can tell. Because it, at the time, if you didn't hand your patient 60 pills as they walked out the door, you were in danger of not malpractice, but criminal action. Criminal action. And so doctors were scared to death they either didn't, they either overprescribe or sent everything to pain medicine. Pain medicine took the position that pain is what the patient says it is. Therefore, pain control is what the patient says it is. And you don't even need a doctor. The patient should just walk up to a counter and tell them what they want. Literally, that was happening in Florida. It was crazy on crazy. You can't even, and then if you spoke up, it was very much like COVID. If you spoke up, you were crushed as somebody interested in, you were opiophobic, you were interested in harming patients, you were a bad person, and then you heard from all the regulatory agencies on top of that. So it was it was a nightmarish experience, nightmarish. And who knows what the drug companies were doing behind the scenes? Of course, they were they were you know evil empire, you know taking advantage of of uh, of our profession. But neither here nor there. One one of the other things that happened historically is I, I found it odd the notion of medically assisted care or treatment, MAT, caught on as though it was something different. I, I've never practiced addiction medicine without medically assisted interventions. We we just it's just different now. It's just it's just evolved. It's better. Uh, but this whole idea of medically assisted has you you know the way we used to talk about it was how do we make recovery possible? Right. It's it, when you're fighting these brain processes, it's it's impossible unless you give people some help with that physiology. So I'll let you talk on that. No, that's absolutely correct. And um, I, you know, I often get asked a lot. Um, oh, you're a neurologist. Uh, so but you practice addiction medicine. Isn't that really a, a psychological thing? Mm -hmm. And the fact is that we know beyond shadow of a doubt that addiction is actually a neurological brain condition. And, you know, the American Academy of Addiction Medicine really defines addiction as a chronic relapsing brain disease. And I think that this is Progressive. very, yeah, this is very critical uh, for, I think, uh, listen, doctors get this wrong. They don't necessarily fully understand it. And certainly the general public doesn't quite get a grasp on it. 
And, um, you know, this is vital information that, that people need to know about because, um, you know, this is where, like you said, um, it, without medication assisted treatment, the, the chances of sustained recovery are, are, clo- are really close to zero. Uh, yeah. So um, a lot of people don't know that there is treatment that, you know, how do they work? What's going on with these medicines? Are they dangerous? Are they safe? So uh, we could definitely get into, into that. Yeah. It, it kills me that uh, we have, you know, addicts all over the, you know, strewn about our streets, uh, you know, and we have politicians and lawmakers looking at that as though they're living their best life. And who are you to say, and why, why would you, you know, why would you ask these people to do anything? They want to do that. Let them do it. Leave them alone. And the part that they leave out is the progressive nature of the, of the illness. It, it's a progressive illness. It ends in death, particularly opiate addiction. And they just, even if you or I administered the heroin or the whatever drug they wanted, they still progress uh, when it's a pure mu opioid uh, agonist. And that, and we have now, let's just go to this. Now, now we have these mu opioid uh, partial uh, agonists uh, and antagonists that uh, really increase the probability we can get people sort of gaffed on board. Yeah, that's right. And I think just to back up a moment, um, what we understand really is that addiction is really a, a tale of two different centers in the brain. You know, um, the rational brain or our cortical brain is the part of our brain that we, we use to think with and helps us control our voluntary actions. But very, very deep inside the brain is another area called the limbic system. And this part of the brain is the most powerful driver of our behavior. It's the part of our brain that we don't have control over, uh, but uh, it, it makes us uh, feel hunger for food. It's survival drives. It's mating. Um, it runs our entire all of our organs in our body, and so nature didn't want us to be able to um, forget how to run our, our organ systems or forget to to eat. So uh, our limbic system is on autopilot, and we don't have access to it neurologically. We we do, we just don't. Uh, and so what we know is that drugs of addiction, whether it be opiates, alcohol, um, and uh, and other types of drugs, they they cause addiction by high hijacking, uh, when the limbic system is exposed, if your brain is exposed to these drugs repeatedly, there's a hijacking of this limbic system that happens, where essentially that part of the brain um, starts to believe that this drug is as important or actually more important than our basic survival drives, like food and and, and water and so forth. And so now every day, once that switch of addiction is turned on in that limbic system, that the drive for that individual to go out and find that drug compulsively think about that drug and keep using the drug is more powerful than than any other drives and the rational brain even though it sees the negative things that are happening to their life from the drug use you know even though it recognizes that it's not that someone with addiction doesn't see the ramifications and the problems they do but the the every day when that person gets up in the morning the limbic system fights with the rational brain it's sort of rational brain basically says well we really got to stop because, you know, our life is falling apart and we can die. The limbic system says, okay, well, um, kind of tricks the brain and says, okay, well, let's just get it today so we feel better and we'll figure it out tomorrow how to stop. And the, that's the limbic system wins that battle by design. The, the rational brain doesn't even have the, the, the neurons to go back and restrain the limbic system, but the limbic system has tons of control with wiring over our rational brain. So people, people in addiction get stuck here and if you cannot calm down the limbic system with medicines because counseling and therapy although it's very important for recovery 
in the beginning, it can't get back to that limbic system. It can't shut the fire off that's driving the compulsions and the cravings. So we need medicine, as you said, doc, we need medicine to go back to that limbic area, cool it off, calm it down. And now the, now that person can actually think clearly about how, how they want to live uh, and, and counseling can help them because the limbic area is not screaming at them. And so uh, that's what this is really about. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. And according to EPA, indoor air is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases up to 100 times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally. What is the solution? Introducing an air purifier that captured the attention of established media outlets such as CNN, Money, ABC, and more. It is Air Doctor. Air Doctor filters out 99.9% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, even bacteria and viruses, so your lungs don't have to. All Air Doctor purifiers feature whisper jet fans 30% quieter than ordinary air purifiers. We watch TV in a big room with an Air Doctor Pro, and we don't hear it, and I immediately stop the runny nose, I stop sneezing. It really is phenomenal. Air Doctor also comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a full refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code DREW, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off. That's up to $300 off. Exclusive to our podcast customers. You will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O, AirDoctorPro, one word, dot com. Use promo code DREW. That's D-R-E-W. Yeah, and as addiction progresses, there's a couple of things that kick in, which is the the frontal areas, the executive areas start to close down a bit. They don't function as well with progressive addiction. And there's this sort of uh, dysphoric misery that and goes up. So not only do you have drive, you have this dysregulation. Uh, I forget what uh, Dr. Shuckett used to call that. But there's a whole theory around this. And then the frontal areas aren't working normally. They, 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 mm. There's all this, there are all kinds of great uh, cognitive studies on how the brain is just not working right for at, the, at this stage of the game. Uh, and then you brought up some other interesting terms, which I've, I've always kind of found interesting. So, so the medial forebrain bundle of the limbic system is where this disease takes place. And, and it is outside of consciousness, as you said. It's just a drive center. It's just drive. Do that. It's the, I, I call it the do that again part of the brain. That's, that's the wanting part of the brain, which is different than the liking part of the brain. There's an opioid endorphin system that likes these things also. So there's wanting and liking. And the wanting says do that again no matter what, even when you don't like it anymore. You, you take it in the first place because you like it the liking sort of fades away and uh, and the wanting kind of the, the do it again part just takes over, takes over everything. And all the other priorities, raising your kids, going to work, grooming, everything, all the other priorities just get, get diminished. And this one priority emerges, do that again. But you brought out the word craving, which I, it's, a, it's interesting for me. You know, I've noticed that there's a lot of preoccupation these days in addiction medicine. Like what do we do with the cravings? Measure the cravings. How much the cravings? In my world, particularly for the alcoholics, and for the, to some extent for the cocaine addicts too, um, craving I always considered to be a very good thing. 
because the worst patients in the world were the ones that didn't have craving that finished their withdrawal, felt better, sitting on a pink cloud and went, I'm fine. I can do, I can, I don't have to worry about anything. I don't ever want to do that again. And they aren't feeling any cravings. So they walk into the world and they, that do it again system is to go, yeah, you're right. And you also mentioned the word thinking. Thinking is the problem in addiction. That the thinking is always geared towards gratifying the reward. Like th- that reward system, because it controls everything, gets you thinking things are a good idea that are a terrible idea, such as not doing recovery because you feel fine. Uh, but wh- I, I, the craving, I always, when patients would complain about craving, I would go, go good. That means that let motivate, let that craving motivate you to go to a meeting, talk to your sponsor, do things. Obviously, cravings can get out of control, right? We all know that from sort of hunger, right? We can get to the point where it's just preoccupying. But but some cravings, I, I don't, I'm not in favor of suppressing all cravings. What, what's your opinion on that? Um, well, you know, like you mentioned, like, I think it's important to point out craving a lot of people that aren't, you know, don't deal with addiction may think of a craving like how they might crave a chocolate bar or something like that. But it's far more powerful. Mm, um, mm. And it's hard to imagine what it's like unless, mm. you know, you either deal with it or you treat people with that. Um, it, it, it's it's like you said, it's if, think about being hungry, right? So your limbic system is sending these signals to your thinking brain to, to feel hunger and to go get food. You know, if, if you can't think about trying to turn that off and saying, nah, 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 I, I won't be hungry now. I'll, I'll just eat later. I'll eat tomorrow. You know, basically the limbic system just keeps um, uh, firing away with those impulses for you to, to go and get that food and, and to eat. And if you don't do it, you get more and more uncomfortable and, and drug when you're addicted to drugs, as, as you mentioned, the drive is even more powerful. And the way you know that is look at people who are addicted to opiates, right? They, mm. they don't, they, they don't eat, they, they lose, they lose, they become emaciated. Uh, mm-hmm. They have no drive to eat. The only drive is to get up and to go find that drug. And if that doesn't show you, you know, that there's clearly neurological changes happening in their brain where they don't even care about food, uh, you know, you know uh, there's, you don't need any more evidence that there's obviously a brain condition happening, mm. exactly you know, right. and I want to make one, I want to make another point if I could yeah. um, sure, doc about, about addiction versus physical dependency because this is something that you know again you know it it confuses uh uh, people in general and certainly a lot of doctors who's not in this field don't fully grasp it um but this is important uh it's not just semantics about words it it, it's two different clinical situations uh physical dependency is if you just take a drug for an extended period of time a few months say and you know there are some brain changes that happen uh, and if you take them, if you suddenly stop the medicine, you could have the characteristic the withdrawal symptoms of that medicine. Now, that doesn't even have to be pain medicines. It happens with blood pressure medicines and, and, and many others. So every if I took 100 people off the street and gave them uh, certain me- medicines for an extended period of time and stopped them, everyone would go through the same withdrawal process. That alone is not addiction. Addiction is when a switch in the brain goes off. Uh, and that happens partly from our genetic susceptibility combined with the amount of drugs that we expose our brain to. But if that switch goes off, then it, even after you were to go through the withdrawal, say, and, and go through a, a detox a withdrawal, then, you know, most people, uh, say, if I took a hundred people off the street and exposed them to drugs and then suddenly stopped them, everyone would get the same withdrawal. But only only maybe 10 or 20% of those people would then obsessively think about the drug after they got through that withdrawal that compulsively go out and use the drug continuously, even though their life is falling apart. 
And that's the difference. And it matters because if a lot of people sort of think, well, the reason the person keeps using the drug is just because of withdrawal. They just don't like the withdrawal. But if that were true, then you could just send everyone with addiction to a detox. And then after detox, they'd be cured. But that's not what we see at all. We see that detoxes are revolving doors for the same people uh, because you do need detox to help the withdrawal symptoms of the drug, say, but but staying sober is is completely different uh, from yep. addiction, and that's yep. where you need medicines to stay sober. So it's a very different thing. That you know, addiction is much more than just physical dependency and withdrawal. Yep, I mean dependency is a feature of addiction as it progresses, but it's not addiction per se. It's that most people with addiction eventually develop dependency of one type or another. Uh, and you're exactly. right. And in the day of the opioid crisis, the dependency stuff was out of control without addiction, which was really odd to even see that. I, I never saw it before that, really. And uh, and the other thing that I, I've struggled with over the years is, well, and struggle with, I, I just found it interesting, is that uh, when somebody is dependent, uh, they can look like a drug addict. They they can even even in drug dependency when they're on the dependent phase they can be they can look and act and they cannot be themselves they can really do stuff that they're way out of character and uh, and the two things I would always tell like sort of family and the patient and whatnot which is a you know I don't see any family history here of addiction so that in, that increases that decreases the probability of this is actually addiction though as you said even in mildly genetically prone individuals, if you take enough of a substance, you can trigger this thing. Uh, but you have to have something usually, but you know, it, it doesn't take away the risk, it just diminishes the probability. And, um, and the other thing is if, if you don't go back, if you don't go back to the drug, that, that's pretty simple. But in the, in the short term, I usually treated people as though they were an addict. And then we'll see, you know, because the risk was too high of, of just saying, well, it's not addiction. Cause that, that could really, mean somebody dies oh yeah absolutely right now with the way especially you know and, and not the conversation i just need to only focus on opiates because addiction of course it could be with many other things including behavioral addictions like gambling and so forth which we understand yeah. better now but yeah. um no you're right right now with the way the opiate addiction is crisis is especially with fentanyl now um you know every use is really life and death you know and we and we always would say that and it was true with heroin and it was true with oxycodone pills but but really now every every use is life and death. And what I'm seeing in practice now is that even, uh, you know, it used to be that people who would develop addiction typically would be able, you know, would be able to go to uh, some rehabs, uh, have some relapses and and gain the tools along the way. And, and they could get sober uh, over time and maintain sobriety. But now what I'm seeing is that, um, you know, people just don't make it that long. The, the drugs are just too strong. The overdoses happen too easily. And yeah. uh, I'm seeing people that are 16, 17, 18 years old trying one pill, you know, and it's, yeah. and it's game over. They're, they're dying from one pill. They don't even have addiction. They right. just experimenting one yes. time. And so that's really changed the landscape where, you know, people don't, they're not even getting to their first treatment trial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're just dying. And that's, well, so, so talk to you, talk about that because I, that I, I've been saying for a while that that's the population that, that people don't know yet. That's where the very steep slope is right now, which is kids getting drugs on the internet who are not drug addicts. They're just drug abusers. They're looking for a Xanax or something. And they, and they, you know, they, they like you just do what you described. They die of a fentanyl overdose. Are you seeing a massive increase in that? Like I've been 
predicting? Yes. Uh, you, well, your predictions are, have been uh, right on point because like, you know, it, we urine test everybody, right. To, to see what, what's going on at all their visits and so forth. And I haven't seen virtually everyone that comes in, even if they think, even if they believe that they're not taking fentanyl, mm. it's all fentanyl, mm. even the, all the pills that are on the street, they're all pressed. They're all fake pills. Mm. You, you know, um, they think it's, they think they're real pills because they have the right uh, numbers on the pill and so forth, but they're not, they're all pressed fake pills. And we, listen, it's much harder to get them from doctors. Now doctors have smartened up and uh, the bad ones went away and practices got shut down. And, and so it's much harder for people to find them and they're all uh, being pressed and, and fentanyl's in all of them. I mean, it, it's rare that I see someone come in with, for opiate addiction and it's not fentanyl. Yeah. I was, I, you know, I was complaining about the excessive prescribing of, opioids by our peers in, the, in our opening comments here. And, and um, you know, now we've gone the other way. <laughs> now we can't, now people are being inadequately treated for pain. I can't believe it. And and all of it at the core of all of it is a misunderstanding of what addiction is and how opioids work. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, the, the pendulum swung the other direction and, you know, and, and, and here we are. Uh, but look, by and large, the truth be told, you know, uh, Opiates should really be reserved for for mostly for cancer related pain, how they were intended. Uh, I think in this country, we use about 95 percent of opiates of the whole world uh, and uh, they don't typically have to be used or after a surgical procedure or a dental procedure, mm. say, if it's particularly, uh, you know, uh, you know, not really after dental procedures as much. But say you're having a, a surgery afterwards, most people could be fine with two or three days of an opiate medication, not oh, yeah. how doctors used to prescribe it, where a dentist would give, you know, 30 pills of mm-hmm. oxycodone, you know, it, it, you were just, you, you know, how could you not be causing addiction when you're doing that when when a yeah. certain percentage of the population has a brain that's susceptible mm-hmm. to that addiction to be turned on, and you're handing out weeks of oxycodone for people to take that light that switch is going to go off. And that's, and that's yep. what happened. Yep. Yep. I, saw, I used to see a lot of it in, uh, you know, sort of the people wouldn't understand why kids in late adolescence had exploded with addiction when they'd had an orthopedic surgery two years before, and they were given opioids for three months afterwards. And it's like, yeah, what do you think happened to this poor kid? And, uh, and then it goes down as a bad kid and a behavior problem and all this nonsense when it's just mm-hmm. this system and the brain activated. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whatever stage you're at. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify makes it easier for you to show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style, flexible templates, powerful tools, and Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify's global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of entrepreneurs use Shopify. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support you every step of the way. And you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash drew. It's all lowercase. Shopify is S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash drew. Now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. It's time to use Shopify, and you can sell more with less efforts thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. It is shopify.com slash Drew, D-R-E-W. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, you'll hear amazing stories from people that have lived them, from spies to CEOs, even an undercover agent who infiltrated the Gambino crime family. 
You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with Jack Garcia, who did just that. My career was 24 out of 26 years was solely dedicated working on the cover. I walk in, I'm in the bar. Now there's a barmaid there, good looking young lady. She's serving me drink. Hey, what would you like? I usually, my drink was, give me a kettle, one martini, three olives, glass of water on the side. I finish the drink, the guys come in, I'm gonna go, go in my pocket, take out the big wad of money. Bam, I give her a hundred dollars. If you're with the mob, I say, hey Jordan, you're on record with us. That means we protect you. Nobody could shake you down. We could shake you down, but you're on record with us. For more on how Jack became so trusted in the highest levels of the Gambino organization, check out episode 392 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the medical treatments. Um Let's talk about uh, Vivitrol because it's kind of an interesting drug. And, and I know it's been approved for certain things, but I've been using it for a lot of different stuff over the, over time. And, yeah. uh, and we're going to talk about what's called off-label use here, which we are entitled to do, everybody. Pharma companies are not entitled to talk about it. We are, as physicians, we can use any medicine however we feel is necessary to help a patient. And Vivitrol is one of these ones that has sort of wide application. So I'll let you talk about that for a minute. Yeah, for sure. So um, I so I actually was a speaker for Alchemies who makes Vivitrol. And I um, used to travel around the country and speaking to physicians about the things that we're talking about and different medication assisted treatments that we have. So uh, Vivitrol, uh, I use it every day in practice. And um, it is it is a a medicine which is so everyone most people have heard of naloxone or what's in Narcan. And that's the rescue drug when, when there's an opiate overdose where emergency teams will, will um, spray naloxone into somebody's nose and it knocks the opiates off the opiate receptors so the person will start breathing again. It, can, it, it legitimately saves lives every day. Um, and, but what, what we found out was that if you were to take that medicine, that naloxone, uh, or naltrexone, which is essentially, you know, the, the same kind of medicine. And you, um, you could, they were able to make a formulation where you inject it into somebody uh, and it, it slowly is released over the entire month. And what that does is, uh, number one, it's a blockade. It blocks the opiate receptors, not for an hour, not for a day, but, but typically for about a month. And, and so if someone were had Vivitrol in their system and were to take an opiate, in most all scenarios, uh, the opiate would sort of bounce off the brain, so to speak. It wouldn't. They wouldn't feel high. Uh, it wouldn't. It wouldn't create uh, an addiction again. And it would just stop it from binding. But more than that, what I've seen in practice is that it actually reduces cravings. Uh, well, let's stop. Well. Stop with that. I, I've I've seen that in the literature also, and I think I've seen it in practice. What do we think that is? What, why do we think that happens? And and talk a little more about you know what it means to have the opioid system blocked for extended period of time. It seems to be some other physiologies are triggered, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to get into here, and it's yeah. it's really fascinating stuff. I mean, yeah. Um, not to jump jump ahead here, but for alcohol addiction, you know, what we understand about alcohol is that um, the way alcohol actually causes addiction for, in the brain is that um, it actually, in, 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 if you have the susceptibility to have alcohol addiction, essentially what happens is when alcohol hits the brain, not in everyone, but in certain people, um, it causes, uh, 
it causes an increase in in the dopamine in that reward system the same way that opiates actually do that final pathway that alcohol goes through it can cause a spike in dopamine in the reward system in that limbic system and mm -hmm. that causes the hijacking uh, in that limbic system and sets the addiction off. Mm -hmm. So ultimately the final common pathway with opiates is, is actually quite similar to how alcohol ultimately addicts uh, somebody. And, and so how you feel when you have a drink of alcohol, is very different than somebody else that has an addiction. I think a lot of people don't understand that. It's not that um, the person with addiction has bad willpower. Uh, it, I mean, think about it. Most people, if you don't have an addiction to alcohol, you could get a drink, drink a few sips, put it down, say, forget you even had the drink. That will never happen to someone uh, who has alcohol addiction. You know, th they obsess about it, they think about it, and one drink sets off a, a cascade of mm -hmm. signaling in the brain that lights up that limbic system, and then they compulsively want to keep drinking. So how s it's not just about the drug, and that, that's a major theme that I think we the audience understands. It's not just about the drug, it's about your brain and how the two interact. Uh, and so, um, I, I think I kind of got off on a tangent well, there. Well, I, I'll, uh, just, but, I'll just say, yeah. I think what you're tilting at, which is that the, the endorphin system, even though it, it funnels down into the, uh, medial forebrain bundle and the nucleus accumbens and all that business, the, the limbic system, so-called, uh, is ultimately the endorphin system is one of the major inputs into all that right and this is why yeah. vivitrol is approved for both opiate addiction and alcohol addiction and a lot of people say how could one medicine do both and the reason is because that final pathway if you block the the endorphin the mu opiate re receptors mm -hmm. ultimately then even people where alcohol triggers that area it will get blocked yeah and so if someone has vivitrol in the system and it's not that they um you know they won't get sick if they have a drink but if they if they drink, they just tend to not love it as much. Like right. my, you know, what the studies show, and in my practice, what I see is that you know um, they may be a heavy drinker, having you know five six drinks in a day uh, regularly, and then with Vivitrol in the system, they could ha they actually have a drink and they put it down, and they don't necessarily obsess about the next one and the next one, which is pretty wild to think about, but it's true. And, and we'll get into this with gambling too. Um, it's 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 pretty incredible how so Vivitrol is not everyone's heard of Suboxone or Buprenorphine. That medicine is opiate based, uh, and that's okay. It, it, it you know um, it's a partial opiate agonist, and we'll get into that, of course. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. people have heard of that. Um, Vivitrol is not Suboxone and Methadone are more similar in that they're both the, part of the opiate type medicines. But Vivitrol is not. It is not an opiate. It's not a controlled medicine. Uh, it, you know, if you're on it and decide to come off it and not get the next shot, there's no withdrawal from it. It just stops the cravings or it reduces them. And also it acts as a shield or a blockade so that the person won't overdose or get high from the drug. You, you brought in a new system here. You use the, you use the term loving it. And that is a very specific biology that is triggered by most drugs of addiction. I mean, when you, particularly drugs like cannabis and alcohol, when you talk to people about their relationship with the drug, they will use terms like "I love it," and and then you th you have to. If you're not an addict, you should think to yourself: Do they really mean love it? Yes, they really, really mean love it. And it's and it's something that's what one of the feature, another feature that makes this experience very, very different. And I've always thought that to some extent, part of the Vivitrol mechanism is in that system. It's interesting that you brought that up. The other thing I've used it, I, 
use it in cocaine. I've used it in stimulants. You know, it's a, it is a final common pathway. The endorphin system, the liking it system has to be activated or you wouldn't use it. And that's the endorphin system. And then once you trigger that, you're funneling into the reward system. So it makes sense to me that all drugs of addiction should have some effect from, from Vivitrol. Yeah, I mean, that's how they trap you. It traps you through that, that final pathway in the limbic system. Um, and interestingly enough, um, the, they're doing studies now where they're spraying naloxone into, you know, into the nose of people that have gambling addiction. Because we mm. know if you ever watch someone who has gambling addiction, if, you, if, if you, you know someone who has, it looks every bit as much as powerful as any other drug addiction. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, people will spend all their savings, their kids, college funds, everything. They'll, they'll be homeless and they'll keep going. Uh, and that, and what the recognition is that that's hijacking the limbic system too. Otherwise people wouldn't continue to use despite their life falling apart. And, um, they're doing studies now where they're spraying naloxone into people's noses. So it's blocking that reward opiate system. And then they're, they're having them go into casinos to gamble. And, and sure enough, uh, they, it's looking like from these, these studies, they're preliminary, but it's looking like these studies are Patients don't love the gambling as much. They might try it a little bit and they don't want to keep going. Uh, and that's just, it, it, it's, it's a huge leap forward in our understanding of addiction as a, a moral failure, uh, personality disorder yeah. oh, to understanding how neurobiological it is. Yep, of course. Uh, yeah, the gambling breaks down into three or four different categories, which I find interesting. I went down to UNLV and I uh, blank on the guy's name. I always blank on his name that runs a, a gambling laboratory at UNLV. And uh, there's international societies, for, you know, for treatment of gambling addiction, and whatnot. Uh, and there's some gambling addicts that are dissociative. They actually dissociate when they go in. Those are, tend to use the machines, the the, the video machines and stuff. Okay. Um, and and uh, this, uh, I'm going to think of his name as we go along here. He said some of his patients would actually go to the casinos with diapers because they would dissociate so badly they would lose their urine and things. Uh, and other gambling addictions are the are the reward ones, like you're talking about. And then there's other categories that actually are sort of actually deading addicts and they like the losing. They don't feel normal unless they have their back against the wall and they actually don't, don't stop until they lose, which is for an average person. You go, what? That's not possible. And, but I would see, I would imagine that that group also might respond to the, uh, a locks on a little bit because there is sort of a high associated with that. Also the high is just on the other end of the, reward spectrum it's the losing part as opposed to the winning part yeah and i've used vivitrol off-label as you mentioned for patients with gambling disorder Mm. uh and 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 um the and and all of them every single one of them came in and said like how does that work how did i not want to keep gambling oh that's good yeah it's really it's really um such fascinating uh new information we have and it can help a lot of people let's talk about a medicine i don't hear much about these days but a campersate do you uh, use that ever? I used to use it with stimulants yeah. here and there. I had some effect uh, with it. My experience with it was about 30% of the time, if somebody was getting, you know, see, sometimes cravings would just manifest as desperation, right? Uh, and people don't talk about how desperation, the feeling of just desperateness, they, it's all they have is just desperateness. Um, desperate. That's the patient who's going, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got, I'm fine. I'm fine. I got to go. Got to go. Uh, and they are not even aware maybe sometimes that they're having cravings that, that they want to do drugs. They just feel desperate. I found a campus that worked for those guys, uh, though maybe, and, and even then it wasn't reliable. Like it was only some of the time. Uh, and some of the time I got muscle problems, myalgias and things from it. What, what, what are your feelings on the campus? 
Yeah, so so uh, my experience with Campbell, I don't prescribe it often. Uh, the results I've, I've seen or, or had uh, have been very sort of mixed, you know. Um, but what I can tell you, and it's really for on label for alcohol addiction. Yes, yes, um, it is. But w- what I can tell you is what I've seen to be very powerful and very reliably effective uh, is actually Neurontin or Gabapentin at dramatically reducing cravings for alcohol. Mm. Um, and Makes I've sense. seen that in, 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 yeah, in so many, uh, uh, of my patients that, and right off the bat, you know, from day one. And I think it's because, you know, alcohol is a messy drug. It hits different areas of the brain. Um, it, it, the addiction is from the limbic area, but you know, there's an anxiolytic component. It reduces anxiety and, mm-hmm. and withdrawal. And, and, and so, yeah. And, and, and withdrawal and, and rebound increased anxiety uh, and and uh, post-acute withdrawal which we don't people don't talk about which your brain takes a while to normalize this back to making recovery possible it could take six to 12 months depending on what your drug of choice was so yeah i'm a big fan of neurotin also mark shucka did some studies back in the 90s maybe 2000s that uh, showed that one one of the potential significant mechanisms increasing risk for addiction is a a proline serine substitution, a single amino acid substitution, and the GABA-A receptor. And so we know that GABA is very involved. Uh, and of course, in withdrawal, GABA is involved. And of course, in anxiety, GABA is withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And neurotin has some, you know, indirect GABA function. And so, you know, this is, it makes perfect sense biologically. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's not that you have to only use one medicine, you know, it's it's not cookie cutter. So, right. you know, it's all based on each person. So I have right. some patients that you you use gabapentin and Vivitrol, and that's yep. finally what stops them from wanting to drink and gets their life back together and, and so forth. And, and, you know, it's not just about medication. Medication is absolutely essential. Mm. Uh, but once people do get that limbic system calmed down, that's where sort of counseling comes in, where their mm. rational brain can then take it in and yep. actually yep. incorporate you know, all of that. And we can get more into that, but, but it's both, but the medicine really has to come first, uh, both for detox purposes, because withdrawal can be deadly, especially with alcohol or benzodiazepines like Xanax. Uh, but oh, yeah. it could literally be deadly. Uh, so you Oof. have to get people through the detox, but yep. then comes the harder work, which is staying sober. And that's where some of these medicines we're talking about come in like Vivitrol or Suboxone say, and counseling. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And of course, I've been a fan of BetterHelp. I'm a fan of online therapeutics. I've been referring family, friends, patients. been very pleased with the services they provide there. Perhaps you're thinking of starting therapy, going easier on yourself during this tough time of year. We certainly take care of our bodies. I don't know why we don't take care of the rest of our system the same way. It's just odd to me. But with BetterHelp, there are no longer any excuses. There certainly is no excuse of stigma or embarrassment, anything like that. I myself have been a patient in therapy, and of course I've been helping patients myself. To say I'm a fan would be an understatement. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Drew today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash D-R-E-W. You want to talk about the duplicitous nature of the drug companies in 1986. 
nine, I had an Upjohn rep sitting in my office going, your patient's not having Xanax withdrawal. That's just the anxiety they had before you treated. Our drug is so good. We suppressed all that anxiety. Now she's just an anxious person. I'm, I'm sitting there saying, they're having seizures. They're having oh generalized oh seizures. Do you hear me? I kick these. I kick people out of my. I kick the the um, the, the the literally the uh, hydro the uh, oxycontin people when they first hit oh. the scene. They were saying we have the first non addictive opiate. I said, really? You're out of here. Get get the f out of my office right now. And then the Upjohn people, yeah. same thing. Your patient's not having withdrawal from our drug. Are you kidding me? Get get out of here. Get out of here. I'll ne- never speak to you again. And that was when they mm-hmm. were allowed in. You know what I mean? Now they're not allowed in reasonably so. But but hang on. I want to go back to uh, uh, the the issue of uh, the recovery process and whatnot. And yes, of course. Uh, and, and oftentimes, I suspect that, you know, if people have bad enough addiction that they need to see you or me, they often usually have other things that set them up for the addiction. And so there you end up once people's brains settle down and you help them manage the the drive a little bit is you have two things. Now you have still the addiction, which needs a treatment and you often have childhood trauma and dysregulation and a lot of stuff around that. And I'm sure you, you must come into that as much as I did. In my world, there was a hundred percent probability because I, I, we had a reputation for treating the most seriously ill drug addicts. You know, we always said the only thing we couldn't handle was if somebody needed a ventilator, otherwise we got it. Um, so always childhood trauma was in the background. Uh, my approach to that was to say, look, we have, we have essentially three major categories here in treating your, your condition. One is we got to get the brain to settle down Two, we got to get the addiction under control. And you're going to, and there may not be enough therapists on earth to do that because you have lots of needs and you're thinking about it all the time. There's these things called sponsors. You can call out to all day long and somebody help them the way they will help you. And that's why they're willing to do that. And it keeps them sober too, to help you guys. So that's very helpful. I mean, there's not enough dollars on the earth to keep all the drug addicts now call it sober. If you, if you were hiring professionals and John Kelly and uh, Keith, um, what's Keith at Stanford? Keith uh, had a Stanford program. Keith, uh, damn I'm it. not sure. Um, they, they did a, a Cochrane analysis. I guess Kelly did the Cochrane analysis uh, on the uh, evidence basis for a, a recovery, you know, 12-step uh, mutual aid societies. And it is as efficacious as any professionally managed systems. So there's a free service out there for you 24-7. Now it's on Zoom as well. We call it some people call it 12 step. Uh, and then we have childhood trauma, which is uh, lurking in the background. In my experience, how, how, when do you treat that piece? Do you, how do you handle that piece? Cause I, I have a specific kind of approach to that myself, but I'm wondering what yours is. Well, um, look, there's certainly certain, uh, what we call comorbidities or, or, or mental health issues that make you more vulnerable or more susceptible to becoming addicted to, to drugs. Um, and some of the m- most common ones that we see are, uh, for one, ADHD is a very big one uh, because of impulse control and, and other fa- factors that come into play with that. Um, bipolar disorder, uh, borderline personality disorder. Uh, these types of conditions, if you look at the evidence, there's a much higher rate of drug addiction with those conditions. Uh, Let, than, well, let's let's than, sort each. Let's wait. Hang on a second. Let, let's tease each of those apart. Because one of the things about bipolar is it's hard to tell when you're treating the patient, do they, A, do they have bipolar? B, did they have it before the drug started? Did the drugs cause it? 
Is it a withdrawal symptom? Is it a toxic reaction? Uh, you know, so my approach always was I treated it the same no matter what, because they're manifesting bipolar features and we have simple ways to help that. Yeah, I mean, that, as you know, it's, it's sort of like one of the most but it's, but, but by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that, that's more of the medical MAT. You know, giving somebody Depakote because their mood is, un, is unstable, that's medically assisted treatment. And it's very helpful. Oh, yeah. Look, 100%. I, I think, look, in the beginning, you're right. Um, uh, drug uh, withdrawal, whether you're in withdrawal or you're still using, it, you know, your how you feel and your symptoms and how you you know your you look on an exam it can mimic um it can mimic mental health conditions and so you really in the beginning look first of all you have to stabilize the addiction right because yeah Yeah. and then once the dust clears on that you know then you can really sort of see what's underlying the addiction what uh, what what mental health dual diagnosis or other comorbid issues does that person have because yeah look you at that point, once the addiction it, it happens, you have to treat now both things. You can't yep. now just go back and treat the mental health issue. That's right. That both conditions are on. The addiction switch is now on in full, you know, in full effect. You gotta treat the addiction. And and really, if you don't treat the underlying mental health issue, the rate of them relapsing is just so much higher. So right. you gotta do both at that point. You gotta make sure. recovery possible. It's impossible when you have other things going on that are untreated. Okay, so then ADD, ADHD. Right. Now, one of the things about ADHD for me, one of the dirty little secrets of ADHD that nobody talks about, and we can debate whether the literature is accurate about this or not, but at least some literature suggests that somewhere between 60 and 85% of ADHD magically is underpinned by childhood trauma. So, hmm. So a lot of those ADHD patients, yes, ADHD does give them the impulse control problems and all those things that may need to be treated, but the actual underlying source may be childhood trauma. Do you think about that? Do you deal with that? Is that part of the, the spectrum? Uh, look, well, look, I I think it's, in my opinion and from my experience, it, both things surely do come into play. I, I mean, there are people who have horrendous, uh, you know, severe ADHD symptoms to the point where they can't function really in life without mm. medicine. Mm. You know, they're just so disorganized and so impulsive. And they just can't get, they, they take one step forward and two steps back and they can't get out of their own way. And they don't have any childhood trauma. So look, I, I, I'm, I'm very, um, it's important, I think, that people understand that ADHD is a real neurological condition that has genetic underpinnings too and by the way whatever caused it it's it's once like it's like addiction once it's there it's there you know what i mean yeah that's a brain thing now it's a brain thing now yeah yeah absolutely it it is and um you know there's just a lot of misinformation about adhd and i i one of the uh things i often see in practice is that um uh you know it's a it's incredible actually and and you know i don't know how you feel about this but I've seen from my experience, a lot of doctors are very hesitant, uh, even addiction doctors are very hesitant to prescribe medicines for ADHD, particularly stimulant medications, if the person's in recovery. But I have to tell you that while intuitively that sounds right, that is not actually what I see in practice. It's, it's the opposite from what I see. I see that that many times if you treat someone with addiction with a, and finally treat their ADHD, and yes, even with stimulants, in not all cases, but many cases, um, it dramatically does treat the ADHD and, and gives back a lot of impulse control to the person. And what I don't see is that then they run off and, and abuse the stimulants. I just, I, I know it's, it's something that, you know, a lot of people talk about and are worried about, but I just don't see that. What I see is that 
people do much better in their recovery when their ADHD is treated, stimulants or otherwise. And and I, there's like a strong phobia, and I understand why that is about prescribing them because yes, they could be abused, but I just don't see that happening in my patients that really do have ADHD. Well, I see some of the best prolonged recoveries I see with my patients well, happen after their ADHD is treated. So, so here's what, I, what I've seen, and because I've been at this, you know, forty years, something like that. Sure. Uh, it is um, certain percentage get better for sure. Uh, particularly in the setting of alcoholism, uh, number one. Uh, Stratera, something I'm very comfortable with, but when you get into some of these other ones, an intuitive and a clonity and all that stuff, no problem. But when you get into real, the, the real word, the, the word, drugs that have amphetamine yeah. in the name of the drug, what I see is for about between six months and three years, you get the best patient you've ever seen. They show up on time for their appointments. They are going to more meetings. They are returning back to their work. Within three years, they have a massive, massive, massive. We, you'll lose them to follow up is what happens. They disappear. You won't even hear about the, the problems because they're so ashamed of it. And it goes, they, they just disappear. So I would just urge you to look at the time horizon going forward and see how many you lose. Because the ones that, because the best patients on earth suddenly disappear. It's like, hmm, wonder what happened there. <laughs> so when you're drug addicts, you know, it's like, oh. so that's why I worry about it. I, I've seen so much of that. And, and it's you, and it's, it's, it's always on us. It's on you and me. It's selecting the right patient for the right treatment, right? That's really our job. And if, if the patient spirals out later, we, di- we didn't get that right. We didn't get that quite right. Uh, that's all. That's all I worry about. I have no, I have no philosophical anything with anything. If it helps patients get better, you know what I mean? This idea, I'm sure, because you and I are aligned straight down the board here so far, the idea of a good drug and a bad drug is just so bizarre. You know what I mean? It's like there's just chemicals effect on the brain. It's just it's these syndromes and everybody's genetically a little different. And it, it, But to say this is a bad drug, that is nonsensical to me it's literally nonsense yeah absolutely we we agree 100 percent. it's not cookie cutter it's not one protocol for everyone you know that's part of being putting your doctor hat on and really um you know looking at each person individually and 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 doing what what can help them and something that could help someone tremendously could hurt somebody else so yes, yes. uh it, it and that's so why, suboxone, you know, suboxone another one of those drugs that's very very controversial for similar kinds of reasons i think there's there's greater adaptation adoption of suboxone these days, particularly in the early part of recovery. Um, I, I want to I want to address two topics. Okay, the the first one. I mean, you and I have a lot of understanding of this disease. Uh, it's rare that I come up with colleagues that have are aligned as exactly as you and I are. A lot of people are prescribing suboxone that don't understand addiction. That's where I have concerns. If somebody really understands the disease and really understands what they're doing and understands how to follow it, understands all the bullshitting that's going to come your way, you know, from because that's part of the disease. If you are offended by a patient lying to you, you should not be in this line of work because that's a feature. It's a symptom. It's not a glitch. It's a symptom, a feature of their condition. Uh, so I, I worry about our peers using it. That's one thing. The other thing it is the best damn 
chronic pain patient treatment uh, I have come across in a long time. So A, do you share my concern about our peers? And B, why are we using it more in the study of chronic pain earlier? Man, you nailed it, Doc. Uh, we are completely in alignment. I'm glad you brought this, uh, these uh, points up. Such good points. Um, first of all, uh, you know, in order in order for a doctor to be able to prescribe Suboxone, in fact, they just recently even did away with that. That would it was like an eight hour course, right? That's that's, um, and, I, and I understand the impetus behind that is really just to get it. There, there are such a dearth of people who can prescribe this medicine versus how many people are suffering with addiction. I think half the counties in the U.S. don't have a doctor who can write even legally write the prescription of Suboxone. Yeah, uh, you know, generic is buprenorphine, but. Um, so yeah, so I think that what happens is it, it, it's very easy for doctors to say, oh yeah, you know, I'll just prescribe this to patients that come in and have opiate addiction. But if you don't understand addiction, you know, uh, you don't, you're not set up to really evaluate someone for addiction or the, the, the other mental health issues they may be dealing yep. with, or yep. what happens when they relapse, what happens if Suboxone is not the best choice for them, you know, then what do you do? And I think that, you know, these, a lot of these places wind up being sort of mills where people, yep take and abuse and sell suboxone that's where stuff is not that so i agree with you 100 percent with that um and then secondly as to your point about being the best pain medicine um uh yes uh listen by far and away uh it is it should be if you're gonna if you have a patient that absolutely needs an opiate for uh, an extended period of time uh, for for, uh, a chronic pain condition uh then i'm much more comfortable with somebody taking buprenorphine than mm-hmm. these other opiates, because as you mentioned before, and we didn't get into this yet, but it's a partial opiate agonist, which means it's going to help that person a lot with their pain and their, their, you know, if they have addiction, it will help them with the compulsions and the cravings, but it also helps with pain. Uh, and it doesn't come along with this ever escalating runaway train of right. tolerance and addiction that happens with oxycodone and hydrocodone, yeah. where they need more and more and more. Uh, and it's, it, it just it, it goes into uh, dangerous territory. I ne- you, ne- you don't see that with Suboxone because of the way it, it interacts with the opiate receptors. It just doesn't it doesn't a person who takes four milligrams today can reliably take four milligrams. It can, can continue on it 10 years from now and could be on the same dose. And we and that's not typically what happens with other opiates. There's no progression. It, it really can be yeah. a, there's no progression. So, something about the the and also the kappa and all that act, in, mm. activation. Yeah, See, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on that, but we'll go ahead a little bit. Give it a little bit. Tell tell them about this. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, there there are different types of opiate receptors. So the mu opiate receptor is the receptor that everyone's most familiar with, which is the, where opiates cause all the most of the pain relief, and where addiction really happens is at those receptors. But there are other opiate receptors, as you mentioned, like the kappa receptor and 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 others, and we're still you know we're still learning mm. about them, uh, but. You know, these medicines have spillover effects. They're not so specific as to only attach to the immune opiate receptor. So some of these medicines effects, we we, we believe are are partly how they go into these other opiate receptors. It's complicated, but um, <laughs> it's, but, it's, you know. it, but it, but it seems I, I, and more we learn about that system though, the more I think it's figuring large into all this. And there's other little subset receptors and things sure. that get activated as well. I forget, I forget all the, you know, the O, O, there's, o there's a, O-E, O-U-E, all that. What, what is that mm. system? <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, yeah. Look, every, every, every month a journal has a new sub-receptor yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that's found. Um, but, but by and large, it, the myopia receptor is what drives all these, all these problems that, that yeah, we're seeing yeah. with addiction. 
Flight 562 is Oh out my gosh, my gosh, Brooke, we're going to miss our flight. We didn't finish the promo. Can we just record it on the plane? I will not be that person. What if we record it in the bathroom? Ew, no, that is disgusting. <sighs> well, we'll just have to go off the cuff and tell everyone about our podcast right now called Gals on the Go. Well, we are two gals constantly on the move with weekly conversations about friendship, navigating your 20s, relationships, trends, and just our exciting, chaotic lives. With Brooke Nicio and Danielle Carolyn, please come to well, the gate Well, I think it's time to board now, but this should be enough, right? Yeah, I'm sure they won't use it. But in case they do, new episodes of Gals on the Go drop every Wednesday. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm, I'm going to give a lecture to some pharmacists coming up pretty soon. And I'm trying to decide how to tell them they should anticipate being a part of this fight. Uh, and there's a part of me that says, damn, we have so many people on the streets that are so far down the line that could be really helped with some of these things. I, I kind of feel like pharmacists should have protocols and things where they could be involved with this as well. Do you agree with that? Uh, well, yeah. look for sure. Uh, we're at the place now, once pharmacists, you know, somewhere along the line, the lawyers were started to sue the the uh, drug stores yeah, uh, for yeah. their role in the opioid yeah. epidemic. And they said, Hey, we're just filling with the doctor prescribed. And yeah. they're saying, yeah, but, but I mean, just look at the volume of opiates mm. you're dispensing. And mm-hmm. then, and then once they were responsible, now you see that, you know, as a doctor, you might prescribe something in the pharmacy, mm-hmm. triple questions, it won't dispense it calls mm-hmm. you back 20 times mm-hmm. now because they could be held responsible. You see them really getting in the thick of it. And that's a good thing. Um, it's just another safety uh, measure, but um, you know, to your point, yeah, pharmacists need to be aware and understand all these things. And, and a lot of times patients ask the pharmacist all, all kinds of medical questions, which isn't great, but um, they, they, they're front and center with it. Uh, and I, I don't know. I think, I think particularly as, you know, because we, I wouldn't have said this five years ago. I definitely wouldn't have said it 10 years ago, but now we, we are fighting a, a fire, you know, this with an out of control fire with people who are going to die if we don't get them access mm-hmm. to this stuff. And it's just like, well, <laughs> go ahead. Do you, do you mind, I, I want to um, just for a minute, if, if it's all right, I want to go back to Suboxone if it's all right. Yeah. Um, um, because this is, you know, there's such a stigma around this medicine, Suboxone. And a lot of the stigma is really, oh, you're just replacing one opiate with another one. You're not helping the person get better. Yeah, and this is yeah. where all that misinformation comes from. Yeah. Because what you actually see, and you cannot certainly attest to this, but but most people don't know this. What you actually see is that um, when people have op- when people are using other types of opiates, they have opiate addiction. It's a runaway train. They're losing their life. It's tremendous suffering. Their family's yeah. suffering. Yeah. You know, and every every time they use is life and death. When when patients are taking their Suboxone properly, actually, what you see is the complete opposite. They stabilize their lives. They um, wake up every day. They take it like any other medicine when they get up in the morning, and they're limbic system isn't screaming at them to go get high but they but can, um, you know, move, move. I, I, was trying to ask you, I think what you're what the what the 
you're talking about what happens in the meeting rooms, you know, the, the stigma that's there. And I think the stigma is the result of the overprescribing we were talking about earlier. And the fact that people are left on very high doses and they look high to the, you know, you and I would be getting people way down. We're getting them way down where this is just something to manage the reward, not to, and you know what I mean? It, but if you, if you don't know what you're doing, patients will use it to get high. They will use enough to figure mm-hmm. out, a, they'll use everything to get high. They'll yeah. use, you know what I mean? They, if you don't know what you're doing, they, that, listen, that's just they, the way they, it works. They, and people, yeah, people do, listen, people do sell Suboxone. It has a street yeah. value, but I, I will say a study showed that uh, most people buying that is because they're trying to get off the opiate drug that's yeah. ruining their that's life. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So, but, but there's, there's a lot of between, good with that. But, you, but we're, we're, we're parsing a lot of things here because it is a complicated topic. There is use, use of Suboxone for withdrawal because it's a good way to get people off drugs, but there's a maintenance form that is, is for certain patients, again, the right patient, a low dose can is the difference between life and death. But but I'm yeah, but actually saying, I, go ahead, go ahead. No, I think you'll agree. Uh, I think you'll agree with this. Again, it's my experience that, that um, a lot of these places, a lot of these centers, will we're, we're starting off by just using sort of these five day detox with yep. the box of like eight yep. milligrams, six, yep. four, two, and then out yep. the door you go. And yep. these patients inevitably went into horrendous withdrawal within twenty four mm-hmm. to forty eight hours after leaving. Would relapse, would get high, possibly overdose, or wind mm-hmm. up back in detox and rehab. Yeah. That system is not a good system uh, no. because you can't just you know someone with addiction you can't just give them suboxone for five days and then expect oh the withdrawal is done now you should be okay. Uh, it's just not what we see. It's not what the evidence shows. Yeah. Uh, people need M8 medication to help them at, at least for, for you know several months, perhaps yeah. more. Yeah. There, are, yeah. listen, there yeah. are people on even Suboxone, and I do have some some issues with methadone more than with Suboxone. But yeah. but there are people on these medicines for years, and they yeah. legitimately are saving these people's lives. And yes. I think that that people on the outside don't understand that, you know. Well, I, I, the other, the other, of course not, right? Of course, the, 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 the complexity of this gets missed on everybody. Uh, and, and I find myself having to coach up patients that are on two milligrams of Suboxone doing great, who feel ashamed. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, no, no, it's not getting you high. It's not affecting that. You're, it, it seems to be the difference. Because, and, and by the way, multiple attempts at coming off have been unsuccessful and whatever. Uh, it, it's it's complicated. You, you, and ultimately, you need a good practitioner managing it. Ultimately, really, that that's what's missing so much. Very few physicians really understand this thing. And it, it's 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 time consuming. It requires teams. It requires the the easiest thing in the world is to open your prescription pad. The hardest thing is to say no or to you know manage these things against the 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 addiction uh, which wants to go a different direction. It, it's 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 challenging. It's difficult, but man, it is it is. And 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 and, and that's where sort of telemedicine comes into play too now. Mm, mm, makes sense with helping because it's such a small amount of doctors to to treat this. Ugh, but but back to my thing about the pharmacist i i think that you know pharmacists are really good at creating protocols and things and and they're they're very conscientious as you were pointing out and i don't know i think that they could be a very important line of defense and in, in the homeless thing i'm thinking about the homeless population primarily um and so i, I hope mm-hmm. they'll and, and in the chronic pain setting too and by the way we have a problem with the dea you know i've got people coming up with all kinds of creative uses of uh suboxone patches and this and that and dea will prosecute you if you use these things in outside of the setting of addiction which is insane it's insane this is back to the under the under prescribing mm-hmm. of opiates right you're shaking your head yes yeah. you you've had to no deal with no this? I, I i i agree i mean it, it's 
there's a lot of threads that 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 clash with one another here. Um, you know, one of the major things that happened, look, in the beginning, you were practicing during this time when Suboxone first came out, and even up until a couple of years ago, getting the medication authorized through insurance was very difficult. Mm, um, and it was life-saving for many people that needed mm. it, and it would cost them $500 for one prescription. Yeah. And so, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it, 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 and so the government has to drop these um, prior authorizations. They're working on it. They've made some progress, as you know, getting someone to get coverage for rehab for 30 days or, oh. or detox Ugh. or what have you. It could be a nightmare or the medications. Yeah. And, and that's when people are just getting sober, they're the most vulnerable. So, oh, I know. you know, yeah, so, so that's terrible. another so terrible. Heavy listen. there. Well, listen, we, we have uh, chewed up all of our time, but it's been yeah. a, it's been a pleasure. Uh, and I kind of had a feeling we would uh, have a lot of, uh, you know, anyone that works with this thing in earnest in, in its depths, it, it's not a mystery. It becomes very clear to practitioners as, as you work with it. And, and one of the, geez, I don't want this to sound pejorative because I don't mean it that way at all, but, but, but you really need our training as physicians involved with it. You know, we, we see the full picture and if you're a social worker, you're going to miss it. If you're a chemical dependency counselor, you're going to miss some things. If you're, just a psychiatrist who's not been treating you have to be steeped in this thing. Um, and so <laughs> I don't know how Absolutely. we get more practitioners like yourself uh, trained up. Mm -hmm. uh, it's unusual. You went from neurology to this. Congratulations on that. Um, but we, we, are you teaching also? Are you doing any teaching? Uh, yeah. So um, I'm a professor at the Hofstra medical school on Long Island. Good. And, um, but, but, you know, like you said, it's unusual, but, but, <laughs> But at the same time, it, it does make sense because there's so oh, much yeah. neurology involved oh, oh, in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, I'm an internist, yeah. right? It's, it, and, I, yeah. and, I, and I always liked brain stuff. That's how I ended up in a psychiatric hospital. But it's, it's a biological medical thing. And back to my point is that you, they need us, you know, armies. They need our perspective in this thing to really manage it, to make it all possible. Because it, it, if, you, if you're just looking at one aspect of the elephant, you know, you're just looking at the foot, yeah, you're just looking at right. the trunk. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and this is what I used to, when I used to lecture about pain medicine, you know, back, I, you know, pain medicine saw one thing, psychiatry saw one thing, neurology, it, it, you need the holistic approach to this thing. So keep up the good work. Where can people go if they want to uh, get your services or, you know, know a good place to go out in that area? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I'm not on here to promote anything. I just meet people. Well, every listen, day. I, I'm saying it because I know a lot of people are looking. A lot of people are looking for good services because they know they're not getting them oftentimes. So, what do you got? Yeah, well, no, I mean, well, you know, look. Um, first thing is, you know, I, I, I meet with people every day who, you know, are really hopeless. They feel like they tried everything to get better. They continue yeah. to relapse, lose yeah. everything thing in their lives their family yeah. suffering as we of mentioned um, but now that we have a lot of treatments available um, they're covered by insurance uh, you know the full breadth of treatment is covered by insurance whether it's vivitrol suboxone uh, rehabs outpatient anything that you need but you need a good conductor someone who's looking over the whole thing yeah. uh, as you just pointed out and so the best thing that you can do especially if you're in new york is you can reach out to oasis um, and oasis is the uh the state agency that that um, helps cr uh, credential and make sure that uh, you know that when you're going to see a doctor or center, they're credited. They're using evidence based. No, you want to reach out to the, um, uh, the your your state uh, office of addiction services, really, because Oasis is just for New York. But you can go online and, and you can um, you know they have uh, a number you can call where even if you don't know what to do, you don't know what the next step is, they will help you and help guide you to a place that's going to use these types of medicines we were talking about and type of counseling, um, uh, but. You know, it, 
it's not it's not like uh, you have to go to one person or there's only one you know uh, you have to you know fly across the country to get help it, you know there are the, the main thing is to get into a, a certified center where you know they're going to be using evidence based yeah. treatment yeah there's, there's not a magic person or a magic potion it, it's it's just good careful team management over time so well listen i'm so glad you reached out to me yeah. i had a feeling we'd have this conversation yeah. and uh uh happy to support yeah. you any way i can and uh, appreciate this uh, i'll let you give any last thoughts uh well look it's never hopeless that's what i want your audience to know if they're dealing with addiction or they have a family or a loved one that's dealing with addiction it can feel that way but it doesn't matter how many overdoses or rehabs uh that that you've been to or, or or you know your loved one has been to we we understand much more about addiction now uh and if you if you get to a, a you know a doctor uh or a center uh that's an accredited place you you'd be uh, you could be amazed at um what some of the new treatments can do there you go thanks Roski. thank yeah. you so much thank you so much all conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Hold on to your jingle bells. Pluto TV has all your holiday favorites for free. Enjoy Christmas classics like Scrooge with Bill Murray or Last Holiday with Queen Latifah. Plus, dive into festive channels like holiday movie favorites by Lifetime or Hallmark Movies and more. Download the Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming holiday favorites on live channels and on demand. With thousands of free movies and TV shows, Pluto TV is your home for the holidays. Pluto TV. Stream now. Pay never.